Well, thank you so much, Norman. I really appreciate that uh, introduction. As Norman said, I'm a pulmonary and critical care specialist and I practice in Southern California. And so for the last six to nine months, I've been taking care of COVID-19 patients. And uh, here's a typical scenario that you might see uh, in, in a hospital like mine. A patient comes in with COVID-19. And as you dig down into the medical history, you find out that he was just there last week. Except when he came in, he had a normal oxygen saturation and didn't really require to be hospitalized. So he was sent home. And now he's in a much worse situation. And now he's being admitted to the intensive care unit. He's being put on high flow oxygen. He may even be placed on a ventilator in the next day or two. But that, it doesn't stop there because at home, his wife is also having symptoms, although more mild. And she's worried not only about him, but herself. And it doesn't stop there too because maybe there's a daughter that's calling in from another part of the country and her parents are alone, her mom's alone. And what's gonna happen to her? Is there some information we could give her mom or something that we could do to support them? These are the questions that run through your mind as you're taking care of the situation in real time. But by, by folks, by the end of today's lecture, I will have a call for you to make in, in terms of this. This is a situation that is happening in terms of all over this country and all over the world. We're seeing the same story repeat itself over and over again. And so the question is, is what do we do about this? What is the call for the medical evangelist? So we're gonna talk about the epidemiology and the pathophysiology of SARS-CoV-2. We're gonna discuss the latest information about the tools for learning about COVID-19 and ongoing interventions that are being studied. And then most importantly, we're gonna challenge you, the participant, to combine the tools learned with what we can do as part of the body of Christ. So as we know, we are in full pandemic mode here with COVID-19, but we learned early on in a number of articles that came out, this one particularly in The Lancet, that showed that when people come down with COVID-19, there's really two phases to this illness. There is the, of course, the five-day period of uh, incubation, and then about seven days of symptoms occur, fever, cough, and then those that progress to a worsening course after seven days, we'll then be admitted to the hospital and from there it goes downhill in, in a number of these cases. So there is an early at home phase of this virus, if you will, and then there's a late hospital phase to this virus. So once again, we have the population and we try to prevent infection. Then there's this early phase, if you will. And for those of you who are symptomatic in this phase, about 20% of these people will go on to get progressive disease and actually be admitted to the hospital. And that can cause hospitalization, high flow oxygen, ventilator, intensive care unit, and unfortunately death in, in a number of these situations. But here's the key, 80% of these patients early in the course, the immune system has success and these patients don't go on to need hospitalization, but in fact will do just fine and, and get better. Now, there are those patients that have long-haul symptoms, but uh, for the most part, 80% of these patients early on will do fine and will not need to go to the hospital. And the reason for that is their immune system. So let's learn a little bit about their immune system. There's two parts to the immune system. There is the innate immune system, and this innate immune system goes around and scavenges particles that are not part of the body. And it's very, very strong when you're born. This is why babies have fevers. Uh, more than adults do because they have a very strong innate immune system. And the cells of that immune system, the innate immune system, are predominantly, I want to focus in on the monocyte and the natural killer cells. We'll be talking more about that as we go on. The adaptive immune system is the part of the immune system that learns as you get older. They see antigens. Uh, you get vaccines and antibodies. This is what learns what's, what's self and what is non-self. And uh, this gets better and better with age, whereas the innate immune system gets lower and lower with age typically. So that's an important understanding. The other thing that's very important to understand about the innate immune system is that it secretes something called interferon. It makes interferon. Now that's a great name for a cytokine because it interferes with infections. So high interferon levels early in the course of a viral infection is very, very good. If you were a virus and you wanted to suppress an immune system response against you, your job would be to somehow suppress that immune response through interferon. Interferon is the cytokine that tells the other cells in the body there's danger, get ready, there's an infection, put up your barriers. So you want to have good interferon levels. So we learned very early on because this virus is very similar 
to the first SARS virus in 2002 and MERS in 2012, we knew already about those viruses. And there was some suppositions that were made very early on in the course, and I'll, I'll read to you from one published article. It said, based on the accumulated data for previous coronavirus infection, innate immune response plays a crucial role in the protective or destructive responses and may open a window for immune intervention. Acute viral replication later results in a hyperproduction of type 1 interferon and an influx of neutrophils and macrophages, which are the major sources of pro-inflammatory cytokines. With similar changes in total neutrophils and lymphocytes during COVID-19, SARS-CoV-2, that's the current virus, probably induces a delayed type 1 interferon and loss of viral control in the early phase of the infection. Individuals susceptible to COVID-19 are those with causal diseases, including diabetes, hypertension, cardiovascular disease. Listen to this. In addition, no severe cases were reported in young children. When innate immune response is highly effective, these facts strongly indicate that innate immune response is a critical factor for disease outcome. So we knew that. This was published back in March. Here's another article that was published later in June. Studies of SARS and MERS against the interferon response is delayed. They go on to say that severe SARS or MERS had higher viral loads and delayed interferon responses. Thus, it could be that the patients most susceptible to severe disease are those that cannot mount an effective early immune response. They studied about 50 patients, and they found that those that had a huge interferon response had milder disease, and those that had a low interferon response had much more severe disease. Okay, so this is something that is very important. Here's a, a study that was just published just a few weeks ago. Again, it shows that the blue, very mild, had a large interferon response. Those that were severely critical had a lower immune response. Here are two studies that were published recently that explained fully 14% of all of the severe COVID-19 cases. In one situation, there was mutations in the interferon response. Those patients had almost undetectable interferon secretion during the virus. All of those were found in the severe cases. None of those were found in the mild cases. And then as you get older, unfortunately, some of these patients actually had antibodies that bound interferon. And in those cases, again, almost undetectable, that would be the red on the slide here on the far right, those patients had very low interferon response and all of those were found in the severe cases. Those patients that had good interferon responses did very well and did not progress to the severe case. So the take-home point here, SARS-CoV-2, we know, encodes many proteins. Some of those proteins suppress the interferon response. We know that because their cousins, 20 years ago, did the same thing. Some of these proteins might block. The early interferon response is critical in viral elimination. If for any reason, if it's blocked, there seems to be an increase in the severity of disease. And if the response is late, increased inflammation ensues. So this is sort of a way to look at this, the early and the late. The red box describes what the immune response should be. And in a severe case, what we get is the black box. Late in the disease, the red box describes what it should be. It should be a low response. And then what, instead what we see in these severe cases is what we see with the black box. So instead of having a ramped down immunity late in the course, we see it ramped up. The patients develop cytokine storm. They go into pneumonia. They need to go to the hospital. And so that's the problem. We're seeing a maladaptive, malregulation uh, of the immune system. Okay? And this is what we get we get pneumonia. This is a typical case of what we would see in a patient with COVID-19. This ground glass multi-patchy opacification on a CT scan. What you're looking at here is a cross-section of the thorax of a patient, and the black things are the lungs. Those white things inside the black things is the damage that's happening. So once again, let's look at our, 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 um, our diagram here. We see tens of millions of people in the early phase. They're at home, they're waiting to get sick enough to be admitted to the hospital. Nothing is being done for them. Late in the phase are the patients that are getting admitted to the hospital. This is where billions and billions of dollars in research are trying to find therapeutics to treat the patients in this late phase. This is a phase that you already know where we have high inflammatory levels. So you can already tell, is this going to be an area where antivirals are going to particularly be helpful? 
Probably not. This is where anti-immunity medications like steroids might be effective, and we'll see. The three things that are currently FDA approved, they have emergency use authorization for in, this, in the United States, are remdesivir, convalescent plasma, and dexamethasone. So we'll talk about those. Here are the three things that have been approved by, emergently by the FDA. So remdesivir was one of the first drugs that was approved. It came out of the ACT trial. It was stopped early because it met one of the endpoints. And if you meet an endpoint, it's unethical to randomize people to a placebo. And what the, that endpoint was that the, the time to recovery was 11 days versus 15 days. And that was statistically significant. Unfortunately, when they looked at the data, the mortality data was not statistically significant. So we can't say that remdesivir saves lives. But even if it did, the number needed to treat, the number of people you would have to treat to save one life is about 28. It's not overwhelming. You've got to be careful. It's given only intravenously at this point, so it has to be given to patients who are in the hospital. You can't give it to people with renal problems, and as you know, a lot of people who are being admitted to the hospital have renal problems because that's one of the uh, predilections for this disease. You also have to watch liver enzymes, okay? It seems to work in patients who have early disease. Now, there was recently a study that was published just a week ago. This was the WHO study called Solidarity that looked at remdesivir in hospitalized patients. Now, whereas the ACT trial found that there was an improvement in time to recovery, the Solidarity WHO trial found no difference at all in any endpoint. So big question mark on remdesivir currently at this point. Steroids. That was the next drug that came out. This came out of a recovery trial that was in the UK, and they gave a very long-acting dexamethasone um, lasts for about 48 hours, six milligrams orally or intravenously for 10 days. They found that the sicker these patients were, the better it worked. So patients on the ventilator, the number needed to treat was nine. Those on oxygen, the number needed to treat was 29. If you weren't on oxygen, this really didn't make a difference. And that kind of goes along with what we know about the disease. There's an early phase and there's a late phase. In the late phase, you have too much inflammatory factors. So it makes sense the dexamethasone would work in the hospital. And this bore out with a JAMA article uh, publication that showed in a meta-analysis of many trials, no question about it, steroids saves lives in late COVID-19. What about convalescent plasma? So very early on, you have to be part of a research trial to get into this. It was given emergency use authorization. This is where you take plasma from someone who's already been infected with COVID-19, presumably they have antibodies, and you give it to somebody who's, who's in the hospital. Again, We've passed the point of viral, viral replication. We're now into a, a, a cytokine storm. And so what they showed here in the, in the publication was on the, on the y-axis here, we have mortality. And we have three boxes. We have the yellow box, the blue box, and the green box. The yellow box are those patients that receive low doses of immunoglobulin. They have the highest levels of mortality. All the way to the green, which had the highest levels of immunoglobulin against COVID-19, they had the lowest mortality. Now, if you split it up and say, well, should we give it early or late? The, the second box, the one in the middle, are those patients that got it less than three days. And the far right are those that got it in greater than four days. You can see that the group that had the lowest mortality out of all of this was the patients that got the highest dose of plasma and got it the earliest. And that's the type of patient that I would expect. And based on this data, the FDA gave early use authorization. But I want you to notice something about this study. There's no control group. Up to this point, the FDA has been very strict that they are not going to give any kind of authorization unless there was a control group. And even to this day, there are some that would want to pull the uh, emergency use authorization for convalescent plasma. Literally, just a few days ago, there was a paper published out of India that showed that convalescent plasma in patients who are hospitalized in India, huge study, no benefit whatsoever. And the question is, is why? Could it be that they're getting antibodies, but they're also getting coagulation factors in that plasma? And as we know, there's a problem with coagulation, too much coagulation in COVID-19. So to date, where we are is we have Three medications, which are emergency use authorized by the FDA in the United States, and really only just one of them shows to improve survival in COVID-19 in the late phase. We have about 30 million people in the early phase. We have nothing for them. So we're right back to square one with our scenario at the very beginning of this talk, which was what do we do for the man's wife at home? 
What do we do for her? What do we do for the other ones that may be infected that don't have symptoms? What do they do? Because they're going to ask you on the phone when you call them. You've got to give them an update about the guy in the hospital, but they want to know about themselves as well. What do we do? We got early and we have late. There are so many people in the early phase that if we were to come up with a drug for them, it would fly off the shelves. Look what happened to toilet paper, right? Look what happened to, if you remember, hydroxychloroquine when that looked promising. You could, the people with lupus couldn't even get it from their own pharmacist. So does it make sense? Are we going to be able to come up with a medication that's going to help people in the early phase? Even if we did, it would not be useful because we wouldn't be able to get it to the millions and millions of people that need it. And so we have, we have remdesivir, dexamethasone, and plasma for the late phase. We have to think of non-pharmacological solutions. The situation demands. There's no other solution. We have to think of something that's going to work for this group of people that we can get to that group of people. And so an early phase intervention has to be safe with little risk. It has to be effective. It has to be, be able to be implemented without a test. In some of these cases, we were waiting a week for the test to come back. How long does this seven-day period last? A week. You're going to lose precious time waiting for a result to come back. It has to be readily available to everybody so that there's no rushing or hoarding of this, whatever this intervention is. And it has to be able to integrate with the current medical situation. It has to work with currently acceptable treatment options. And it has to be easily teachable so that we can get this out. Just as the virus can go viral, this type of information has to be able to go viral. And so what are the things that are being looked at for early intervention? I'm going to talk to you about some of these options. Vitamin D. Natural substances, I say EO there, that stands for essential oils. I hear you say, are you crazy? What are you talking about? Well, just wait. Sleep, can you hoard sleep? If I sleep more, does that prevent you from sleeping? <laughs> well, if you're married in the same bed, actually it might be beneficial for both of you. Hydrothermal therapy, we'll talk about that, or just hydrotherapy. This is for the early phase, because Let's remember, 80% of patients in this phase get better on their own. If we could just raise 80% to 85% or to 90% or even, pray, 95%, that would have a huge impact in terms of hospitalization. So let's talk about vitamin D. As you know, it comes from the sun. Uh, it can change the molecules in your body using ultraviolet radiation into its, its vitamin form. Vitamin D has to be metabolized in the liver and the kidney. We have great, great retrospective data that higher vitamin D levels are inversely correlated to the SARS-CoV-2 rate. The higher your vitamin D level, the less chance of you of getting a positive SARS-CoV-2. And that cuts for geographical location, that cuts for age, that cuts for race, and that cuts for gender. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. Everybody gets affected the same way. This is retrospective data. I know what you're saying, but Dr. Schwell, association doesn't mean causation. Yeah, we'll get there. Okay, here's another, here's another data point. If we look at the countries in Europe that have the highest mortality rate for SARS-CoV-2, they typically have the lowest vitamin D levels. So way at the bottom, the best, the best countries, Denmark, Finland, Norway, and at the top, we've got Belgium and the UK correlates perfectly, okay? All right, what about prospectively? Well, the Irish, and, and, and naturally so, I mean, in Ireland, have you, do you see the sun much? No. So they have a potential problem there with vitamin D. Well, they started to supplement vitamin D prospectively, and in, a, in this study called the TILDA study, they found that when you supplemented patients with vitamin D, there was a 50, 50% reduction in acute chest infections. I consider COVID-19 an acute chest infection. All right, but there was a study out of Spain that looked at this and you think, well, people should get pr plenty of sunlight in Spain. But nevertheless, they did a pilot study, 76 patients, 50 of them randomized to calcifediol, which is a metabolite of vitamin D, 50 of those patients. Only 2% went to the intensive care unit, nobody died. And the 26 that didn't get it, that got placebo, 50% went to the intensive care unit, 7.7% died. And they got some pretty mega doses there of vitamin D early on. The, the, the form of vitamin D that they got was 25-hydroxy vitamin D. It doesn't have to be metabolized in the liver because it's, it's already metabolized, and it can work very quickly. 
All right, so what do we learn? Vitamin D may be beneficial to mitigating cytokine storm. Vitamin D has receptors in the immune cells and it can ramp down the immune response late. So it acts like a steroid. Actually, it is a steroid. It's a steroid hormone. Uh, what about natural substances like essential oils? So the stimulatory effects of eucalyptus. Check this out. So here on the far left column, we have normal cells. Okay, immune cells. At the very top, it's a very low magnification. At the very bottom, it kind of looks like a fried egg, but it's nice and smooth. That's a, a monocyte, a macrophage. The second column is LPS. So LPS is basically the byproducts of a gram-negative bacteria. It's in the cell wall. It stimulates the immune system. And if you, you probably can't see it too well, but now there's these, these little arms coming out at the bottom in, in the fried egg. It's, it's, it's bumpy. There's like podocytes coming out, ready to grab stuff. It's ready, it's activated. Well, if you do the same thing to them with eucalyptus oil, you get the very same effect. The macrophage aspect of the innate immune system gets magnified. You can see the same thing on the right side. Those red dots are the cells. The yellow dots, which you're probably not seeing so clearly there, is the yellow dots are out there, but they all get sucked inside the cell when you give them eucalyptus oil because they grab and they eat. They know that something is wrong and they start to eat. This is what the authors of the study said. They said, overall, our data demonstrating that eucalyptus essential oil from eucalyptus globalis is able to implement the innate cell-mediated immune response. Amazing stuff. Why were they looking at this? Not because of COVID-19. They were looking to give it to their chemotherapeutic agents so that when they gave it to patients, they wouldn't get infections. And they found that this actually worked. You gotta be careful with eucalyptus oil though because in higher doses, it can actually be toxic. This stuff is not to be fooled around with. A drop is what we're talking about. But these things don't have to be in liquids and ingested. These things are giving off by the trees, in the air, in the fresh air that you breathe. Here's a study from Japan. And what they did was they took 12 healthy men and took them to the forest on day one, measured some blood, they rested. They took them to the forest in the morning, forest in the afternoon, and then they rested overnight, and then they went home after they took blood. What did they find? They found that on significant days, on the first day versus the second day versus the third day, natural killer cell activity improved, natural killer cells numbers improved, and the natural killer cell concentration improved. One day after the next, going up and up. And you know how long this lasted? This effect, so here's, here's a graph that looks at the, that the enzymes inside of the cells. So granulysin, perforin, gran these are all things that eat and grab and it's part of the innate immune system. This effect lasted for seven days. So in other words, you could do this once a week, have a, oh, I don't know, a Saturday afternoon walk, and this would last for the whole week, increasing your immune response. Isn't that amazing? So fresh air, fresh air, okay? So botanical extracts, fresh air, these sorts of things. You can't be in the city when you do this because there's no trees in the city. You've gotta be in an area where there's a lot of trees and growth, ornamental trees. Okay, we're starting to learn this now in the scientific literature. What about sleep? I also happen to be a sleep specialist. This was an amazing study where they basically took patients, they sleep deprived half of them, gave plenty of sleep to the others, and then they gave them a vaccine. And they found that those that were sleeping well had a better response to the vaccine, better antibodies. They say that our findings support the concept that adequate amounts of sleep are needed to maintain resistance to infectious challenge twice the level of antibodies. Here's another study that was done. This was out of Pittsburgh, okay? What they did was they took patients and they actually dropped, they took subjects and they dropped rhinovirus in their nose. Who would sign up for that? These, you know, these gotta be college students, right? They need the money. Okay, so they went in, they got this. They looked back at their sleep habits. Those that slept for less than seven hours a night had three times the rate of infection. If we had something that could reduce the coronavirus infection by threefold, that would, that would be FDA approved at the drop of a hat. Well, I've got something for you. It's sleeping more than seven hours of, night, uh, of sleep a night. What about the quality of sleep? Those that slept less than 92% of the night and those that slept greater than 98%. 5.5 times the amount of infections in those. So here's the researchers came up with this conclusion out of the University of Pittsburgh. Because of the prospective design and the controls from multiple confounding variable factors, these results strongly suggest the possibility of sleep playing a causal role in cold susceptibility. Folks, COVID-19 is a cold virus. It's the same mechanisms. Here's the other aspect about sleep. Not all sleep is the same. 
Early on, you go into something called slow wave sleep. Later on in the night, you get REM sleep. We all know that REM sleep is where you dream. You guys know this, right? You dream and then you wake up. You always seem to dream right before you wake up. This is not the kind of sleep I'm talking about. It's important as well. But delta wave sleep happens early in the night. It happens very early in the night. Slow wave sleep. It's physically restorative. Here's what some people say. Here's a, a, a consultant sleep expert, Simon Kyle. He says, it's actually during the first third of the night that we experience the deepest part of our sleep. We move into deep sleep more rapidly. And it's the phase of sleep during which we're least likely to be disturbed and wake up. This deep or slow wave sleep is the most restorative part of our sleep. We experience low levels of stress hormone cortisol as well as reductions in sympathetic nervous system activity. So you can see why it does us so much good. Slow wave sleep is associated with memory consolidation, our learning ability, and our overall alertness the next day. The emerging picture from experimental research is that slow wave sleep, this is the part of the sleep that you get when you first go to bed, is involved in critical aspects of cognition and daytime functioning and that it assists in keeping our brain and body in optimal health. Slow wave sleep early on. All right, so we, we've, we've learned that getting sleep early in the night is important. We're looking at things that can help patients early in this phase of infection. Let's talk about hydrothermal therapy. We're gonna close a loop. So when I talk about hydrothermal therapy, let me be clear, I'm talking about using moist heat applied to the body to increase either the core body temperature or the surface temperature, okay? Followed by cold, cold friction rub, okay? So let's look and see what some of the data shows on this. This is, this is from the science literature. They took 12 healthy volunteers and they were immersed in a bath of 39.5 degrees. That's about 102 degrees approximately. What did they observe? They observed that after three hours of this, what they call in vivo hypothermia, the response of the monocytes, that's the innate immune system, to endotoxin was enhanced in a LPS assay, that's, the, that's that thing I was talking about, the uh, gram negatives, as expressed by a greater tumor necrosis factor alpha release, which was statistically significant. And they concluded that the thermal effect of fever directly activates, directly activates monocytes, which increases their ability to respond to bacterial challenge. Let me unpack that for you. You may have a mutation that prevents you from having interferon response, like we showed here at the beginning. Fever directly bypasses that, activating the innate immune response. That's very important. Here's a study that was done out of the University of Toronto. It was actually sponsored by the US military, and they wanted to see what healthy people, their response would be if they were responded to uh, cold after being in a warm bath. So those graphs that you see there at the side are increasing time periods with increasing baths, and it shows that the natural killer cells go up and the lytic units go up in those cells, and it, they concluded this. They said this study suggests that despite popular beliefs that cold exposure is detrimental, um, that actually it's quite the opposite. Indeed, the opposite seems to be the case. The fall in core body temperature resulting from cold exposure led to a constant, a consistent, and statistically significant mobilization of circulating cells, an increase in natural killer cell activity, and elevations in circulating IL-6 concentrations. We don't mind increases in IL-6 here because this is early in the course. This is where we want to have an increase in the immune response, not late. So this, this timing issue is very, very important. Here's another one that looked at hyperthermia in humans looking at, guess what? Interferon, specifically gamma interferon. And this is what they found. When they took cells out of these patients at various temperatures and activated them, they found that the ones that came out of the people that were at 39 degrees, that seemed to be the key, 39 degrees, tenfold increase in interferon response. So here is something that may be able to counteract what the SARS-CoV-2 virus is doing in these patients early on, which is suppressing interferon. Hydrotherapy may actually be the key that fits into the keyhole that answers that specifically. So what are the key points that we've learned in possible interventions? That's, that vitamin D and sunlight may impact our immunity to reduce morbidity from COVID-19, especially in cytokine storm that natural substances like essential oils may impact our immunity in positive ways, especially in areas that are depressed by COVID-19. 
Number three, that sleep and its consequences have a major impact on our immunity, especially when it comes to viral infections. The most important part of sleep is at the beginning of the night before midnight. And that number four, hydrotherapy, hot and cold therapy, also impacts our immunity, especially our innate immune system, which is crucial to fighting COVID-19. So let's go back to the paradigm. Early, late. We've got great medications, not really, we've got some medications that may work late in the course. It's not good enough. We need something that's effective early on, that's widely available, and that can reduce this overwhelming surge to go to the hospital. Not just because we need to save the hospital, folks. Let me put another thought into your mind that we don't even want to think about. What happens if we get to the point where a pandemic actually interferes with the supply chain? And there is no hospitalizations. They're not available. That is something to think about. But there's tens of millions of people in this group. So let me suggest to you that sunlight, fresh air, rest, and hydrotherapy may be the answer in this early phase. Is this revolutionary thinking? Not even close. This has been thought of before. Let me introduce you to Dr. Julius Wagner Joreg. Dr. Julius Wagner Joreg was an Austrian psychiatrist living at the in the last two centuries ago. He noticed that his patients with neurosyphilis got better when they had a fever for some particular reason. So what he did was he took malaria, patients with malaria, which they did have the cure for, penicillin wasn't invented at this point, and he injected their blood into his patients. Obviously, that caused the patients to have high fevers. The high fevers cured the neurosyphilis, and then the patient was cured of the malaria with the drug for malaria, chloroquine as it turned out. For this, this was not fringe. He actually won the Nobel Prize in Medicine in 1927 for just this work. And notice what it says here in this article that was published in 2013. In the following years of his discovery, artificial fever was induced by any one of the following methods, the introduction to the patient of a parasitic disease, and it goes on and goes on. And then it mentions simple immersion of the individual in a hot bath or placing him in a heat cabinet. This was the pinnacle of medical service in the, in, the 19, in the early 1900s. This was not developed in a vacuum. No, some of the most prestigious patients in the world would visit the world's largest sanitarium in Michigan, the Battle Creek Sanitarium, that was run by John Harvey Kellogg, also an ardent student of this work. Folks, in 1927, Mr. Wagner Joreg, Dr. Wagner Joreg, won the Nobel Prize for medicine. The very next year, 1928, you know what happened? We discovered penicillin. And that took us down a completely different road, a road of randomized controlled trials, of the FDA, of medications, of companies having the money to do the randomized controlled trials. And we completely discarded, in some way, in some fashion, a lot of what has gone before us. But this is not new what we're talking about. Who's Ellen G. White? She funded the medical education of John Harvey Kellogg. She was also interested in reform. So why is that? Because in 1863, two of her sons came down with diphtheria. Well, as it happened, there was an article in the paper written by a Dr. Jackson. And Dr. Jackson, as it says, pointed out the procedures that would bring relief and finally a cure for Ellen White's children. She says these were attained by the simple means which we call today hydrotherapy. Proper baths, Packs, rest, fresh air, and above all, absence of anxiety. So who is this guy, James Jackson of Dansville? 1811 to 1895, this is what he wrote. Whereas great, he's talking about diphtheria. Whereas great numbers of persons four years ago died of the disease in this town. Kind of sounds like COVID, doesn't it? And whose deaths caused a real panic among the people. The disease has become no more to be feared than any other morbid condition of the body common to our people. This is what... James C. Jackson said. So what does Ellen, Ellen White read very vastly on these things? What does she say about eucalyptus, which we've already shown to be impressive? She says, I've already told you. She wrote a letter to one of her friends. She said, I already told you the remedy that I use when suffering from difficulties of my throat. I take a glass of boiled honey, and into this I put a few drops of eucalyptus oil, stirring it in well. Notice she used a few drops. When the cough comes on, I take a teaspoon of this mixture and relief comes almost immediately. 
I have always used this with the best of results. I ask you to use the same remedy when you are troubled with the cough. This prescription may seem so simple that you feel no confidence in it at all, but I have tried it for a number of years and can highly recommend it. Again, take warm foot baths into which have been put the leaves from the eucalyptus tree. There is great virtue in these leaves. And if you will just try this, you will prove my words to be true. The oil of the eucalyptus is especially beneficial in cases of cough and pains in the chest and lungs. Well, that's good. I want you to make a trial of this remedy, which is so simple and which costs you nothing. This is in a letter in 1909. She didn't have the benefit of that uh, article that we just saw. What about sleeping? Ellen White's counsel to her secretaries, make it a habit not to sit up after nine o'clock. Every light should be extinguished. This turning night into day is a wretched, health-destroying habit. And this reading much by brain workers up to the sleeping hours is very injurious to health. Wake up in the mornings. Set your hour to rise early and bring yourself to it. Then retire at an early hour. And you will see that you will overcome many painful disorders which distress the mind and cause gloomy feelings and discouragement and unhappy friction and disqualify you from doing anything without great taxation. But I love this one the best. I know from the testimonies given me from time to time for brain workers, by the way, that's all of us, that sleep, this is amazing, sleep is far more, worth far more before than after midnight. Two hours good sleep before 12 o'clock is worth more than four hours after 12 o'clock. She knew it. What about fresh air? Remember what we just read about that Japanese study and eucalyptus? Listen to what she says. She says, trees with medicinal properties. The Lord has been giving me light in regard to many things. He has shown me that our sanitariums should be erected on as high an elevation as necessary to secure the best results and that they are to be surrounded by extensive tracts of land beautified by flowers and ornamental trees. Why? Just because it looks nice? In a certain place, preparations were being made to clear the land for the erection of a sanitarium. Light was given me that there is health in the fragrance of the pine, the cedar, and the fir. This is amazing. And there are several other kinds of trees that have medicinal properties and that are health-promoting. Let not such trees be ruthlessly cut down. Let them live. Amazing. Okay, what about vitamin D? It's just for bones, right? It's just for bones. No, no, no. If all would appreciate the sunshine and expose every article of clothing to its drying, purifying rays, mildew and mold would be prevented. This is the only way rooms can be kept from impurities. Every room in our dwellings should be daily thrown open to the healthful rays of the sun, and the purifying air should be invited in. This will be a preventative of disease. Exercise and free and abundant use of air and sunlight would give life and strength to the emaciated. The feeble one should press out into the sunshine and earnestly and naturally as do the shaded plants and vines. The pale and stickly grain blade that has struggled up out of the cold early spring puts, forth, puts out the natural and healthy deep green after enjoying for a few days the sun and the life-giving rays of the sun. Go out into the light and warmth of the glorious sun, you pale and sickly ones, she says, and share with vegetation its life-giving, health-dealing power. So here we put it together. Let's put everything together. Rest, peace, hydrotherapy, sunlight, sleep, all of these things into something we call sanitarium rational treatment. And that's exactly what happened. Here are pictures of sanitariums of the time. Do you see tall skyscrapers? No, you see lush green. You see wide lawns. You see sunlight. Here is a picture of the Loma Linda Sanitarium. You can't even see the sanitarium. There are so many trees. It's covering it all up. Uh, it's, it's absolutely just beautiful. So what does she have to say about these sanitariums? This is what Ellen White had to say. The Lord in his providence has opened the way for his workers to take an advanced step in New England. Okay, let's talk about the sanitarium in New England, a field where much special work should be done. The brethren here have been enabled to arrange to change the location of the sanitarium from South Lancaster to Melrose. Listen to this, a place much nearer Boston and yet, and yet 
far enough removed from the city so that the patients may have the most favorable conditions for the recovery of health. Health was determined by factors that they foresaw and they knew where the sanitariums should have been. By the way, Ellen G. White is one of Smithsonian's 100 most significant Americans of all time. So here we go. Can we put rest, peace, hydrotherapy, and all of these things that we've talked about into sanitarium rational treatment? The answer is yes. Because in 1918, Dr. Rubel, the president, the, actually the medical director of that very New England sanitarium, said this in an article that was published in Life and Health, May 1st, 1919. He said, the present epidemic of influenza has furnished excellent opportunity to test out the efficacy of rational treatment in dealing with respiratory disorders, especially in conditions accompanying and following attacks of influenza. And so what Dr. Rubel went out and set out to do was he canvassed the 10 to 15 different sanitariums in the Northeast of the United States, and he wrote down the statistics of what they were doing and how they were doing it. And he looked at those that were being treated in the outpatient and those that were being treated in the inpatient. Remember, this is a time where they didn't have oxygen. They didn't have the type of medications that we have now. Almost everything that they did in the sanitarium at that time can be done today in the home in just about every single respect. So let's compare. I'm pulling basically from his article, May 1st, 1919, called As We See It. It's available on the internet. You can actually pull up the article. And we're going to compare what happened in the army camps at the time and what happened in the sanitarium. Notice that there were two phases. And he does this very nicely. He's able to show that what they did and what the, what the, um, the numbers were before they got pneumonia and what the numbers were after they got pneumonia. I would say that before they got pneumonia, that would be like the early phase. After they got pneumonia, that would be like our late phase. That's why patients get admitted to the hospital because they have pneumonia. They require oxygen. So if you can see here, in the army camps, he, he got their published information, and he found that, first of all, 20% of the camp came down with influenza. In those that came down with symptoms, 16% of those patients developed pneumonia in the army camps. And of those patients who developed pneumonia, 40% of those patients died. Getting pneumonia was a very severe complication. It was feared. If you got pneumonia, it was almost like a death sentence, okay? And so the overall infection fatality ratio was about 6.4% in the army hospitals. In the sanitariums, as soon as they came down with symptoms, they implemented treatment immediately. And what was, the, what was the treatment that they implemented? What we just talked about, rest, sunlight, fresh air, hydrotherapy, all of those things. 2% came down with pneumonia. Only 2% came down with pneumonia. That was one-eighth of the number of people in the army camps. But the same number of people in terms of a ratio who got pneumonia also died, about 55%. So I would say that you really couldn't tell a difference once they got pneumonia. The key is preventing the pneumonia. That's the take-home point of this slide, preventing the pneumonia. To give you a further illustration, I'm going to read to you an article that was published in the Union Reaper, December 17, about exactly what they did in these type of epidemics. On the authority of Dr. Fred Shepard, health officer of Hutchinson Public Health, no public institution in the state of Minnesota has up to date made a record in handling influenza, the worldwide epidemic that has swept millions into their graves. Like that, to the credit of the Hutchinson Seventh-day Adventist Seminary, the seminary with 120 of its 180 students and teachers housed under one roof, talk about a nightmare, was invaded by the malady three weeks ago. Symptoms of the malady developed with some 90 of these and under the direction of Dr. H.E. Larson, a graduate member of the seminary faculty, every person showing indication of sickness was at once put to bed with a trained nurse taking temperature and watching for symptoms of the epidemic. Did they need a COVID-19 test? Did they need an influenza test? The answer is no, they did not need that. Symptoms was enough. If those symptoms developed, the patient was required to remain in bed. There were no drugs to be given, but with complete rest 
and quiet went a carefully regulated diet and fomentation supplied to the throat, chest, and abdomen. This treatment in almost every case reduced the temperature of the patients, and in a day or so, they were apparently well. But that did not end the matter with them. The next danger was that of relapse. They're talking about pneumonia. To guard against this, every patient was required to remain abed from two to five days after the apparent full recovery, according to the state of their flu affliction. As a result of this system of handling a disease that is scoring thousands of victims every day, there has not been one case that could have been called serious or a single death in the seminary, although there were more to 90 persons affected. The record is remarkable. It makes the ordinary methods of dealing with the flu appear irrational. Again, course of the disease, early, late. We have concentrated billions of dollars and research into the late treatment. And what we have today is a single drug that we know can reduce mortality. And it's a anti-inflammatory medication, dexamethasone. What do we have for the early? We have nothing for the early, currently, that is FDA approved. So folks, what are we gonna do? You know, Daniel and his three friends, Joseph in Pharaoh's court, the little servant girl in Naaman's home, all of these are examples of somebody who was God's servant, who was afflicted and a prisoner against their will in someone else's home. You know that Daniel and his three friends were prisoners in the Babylonian court. They could have said, fooey on you, but they didn't. When there was a crisis, they intervened. And they spread their light to the corner of where they were. You know, Joseph in Pharaoh's court, he was falsely accused. He was thrown into prison. And yet, and he was even forgotten by the baker and the butler, right? It was only until later on they remembered who he was. He could have said, all of you guys deserve to, you know, you know what you did to me? No, he had special light that was given to him and he didn't keep it to himself. He used it for the betterment of everyone around. Remember, do you remember what his brothers said to him? They said, are you going to kill us? Are you going to throw us in prison? He said, no, it was for a divine purpose that you sold me into slavery. It was for a divine purpose that I was imprisoned. Think about the little girl, the little servant girl in Naaman's home. She was taken from her parents. She was taken from everything that she ever loved and she was forced to be the servant of the wife of the, of, the, of the chief military officer of Syria. And then he came down with leprosy. She could have said, serves you right. It's because you took me and that's God's punishment on you. But no, she said, I know, I, I know who can help. There's somebody back where you took me from that can help. And so what did she do? She shone her light where she was able to. Folks, Jesus is coming soon. And we know that in the last days that we're going to be persecuted. Why? Because Jesus was persecuted. And should we expect anything different? When we are persecuted, maybe we'll be in prison. Maybe we'll be somewhere we don't want to be. And we could hold it against them. But the only way that we're going to be able to show love to heal our enemies is if we're trained in the appropriate way. And I can imagine at that time, we're not going to have hospitals We'll be doctors. I, I always used to joke with my wife, who's also a doctor. Yeah, I'm a pulmonary critical care doctor. I'll be completely useless if there's no hospitals. All of that training that I've had, if I can write the order, oh, give, uh, put, change the ventilator to, to these settings. There's no ventilator. I'll be completely useless. Okay? All of my training will be useless unless I understand some of the basic things that God has given us. Let us not throw it away. Let us, let us look back. We've forgotten it. Let's look at it again because we may be in a situation where we can love our enemies just like ourselves or even love our family. And so if we go back to our first initial situation that we talked about at the very beginning where we have somebody in the hospital and, and a wife that's calling up and they don't know what to do, I think we know what to do. I think we, obviously, we need to do some uh, conduct well-designed, randomized, controlled trials. But, but the purpose of this is to, is to do it to convince people that this is what we need to do. There are some people that need randomized controlled trials to understand that this is what, and I don't, I don't disparage that in any way. I think that is something that we need to do. It would be great to be able to do that. But at the same time, people are dying in this pandemic. And as we talk here today, on October 30th, 2020, the numbers are going up. The numbers are going up in North America. The numbers are going up in Europe. And I can't help but think 
that there are certain aspects of this virus that open to us interventions that we know as a, as a Christian body. Just as, just as the woman reached out to touch the hem of, of Christ's body, we are the body of Christ. And if people reach out to us, we ought to be able to do that. You know, it says at the end that, that the last people, the remnant, will have Christ's character fully reproduced in them. Do you know, Christ came, Christ was taken from his home in heaven as a prisoner of this earth, and we killed him. And yet, he did that to save us. And so Christ's character is fully reproduced in Daniel and his three friends. Christ's character is fully reproduced in Joseph in Pharaoh's court. Christ's character is fully reproduced in that little servant girl in Naaman's home. And Christ's character will be reproduced in us when we are in those situations. So I call on you to learn home remedies. Here's the call to order. Here's the call to action. The time has come. You've always wanted to do it. You always said it would be nice to go and maybe take a few weeks off and learn some basic things. Folks, it is yet daylight. The night is coming. Learn when you have it. A lot of the ways that we can teach this is through the internet. By God's grace, the internet is still working. Okay? Use it. Take this opportunity. If you don't know where to go, if you don't have uh, facilities where you are or you're local and you can't meet because of COVID-19, I've put up some very interesting um, references here. Hydrotherapyathome.com is one reference. Another one is hydroforcovid.com. These are people that have studied hydrotherapy and have done this for many, many years and have made this resource available to you. This is not just for healthcare providers. This is not, this is specifically for everybody. Everybody is going to be part of that right arm that I show up on the screen. That's that right arm, as we talked about last night, that is going to propel the body of Christ into the future and as we, as we prayerfully consider the pandemic that we have now. Folks, we do not believe fables. We have been raised for such a time as this. For such a time as this. Let us pray. Dear Lord, thank you so much for giving us the science behind why we do the things that we do. Help us to realize that the time is now to understand and to learn these things while it is still light because the night approaches. Give us wisdom, give us strength, give us understanding. And, and just as this virus has spread as a, a virally, let this information go out. Not only will we learn it for our own, but let us teach it to others. Let us spread the word. Let us make this well known in this country so that God knows and that the world knows that there is a prophet in Israel. In thy name, amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.